Leaders across the developed world have been moving away from traditional working-class parties, while the left has shed most of its connections to anyone outside the email economy, and working-class concerns increasingly meet with progressive resentment and hostility. These are the opening lines of a recent piece from my guest on today's podcast. It's titled, The New Workers' Movement, and it appears in Compact Magazine. In this piece, my guest today argues that by 2022, this has all become pretty obvious, and that the really interesting question is, what comes next for working-class politics? Malcolm Sheyuna is a writer, podcaster, and political commentator based in Sweden. He's also a columnist for Compact Magazine. Malcolm Sheyuna is my guest today on Lean Out. Malcolm, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to have you on. I've been following your work with much interest, uh, both at Compact Magazine, New Radical Journal for American Politics and elsewhere. Um, Today, we're going to talk about a recent piece you wrote for Compact titled The New Workers' Movement. You write that in 2022, the sleeping giant of working class militancy has reawakened. Set this up for us. Give us a few of the developments in the West that have led you to come to that conclusion. Well, um, to set the table, I should say that I joined the left in 2000, like around the great financial crisis. And I think the received tradition in the left was this story about the working class, which was once, you know, in in prehistory, things were bad. Capitalism was this Charles Dickens thing. And then we had the big workers' movements creating these huge industrial unions, these cooperativist structures like uh, Landsorganisationen and ELO in Sweden. Um, and then, you know, thanks to the fall of the Soviet Union and Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, all of that fell apart. Now workers are completely powerless. And, you know, that story, it's sort of, you can fit it in your head. It has uh, uh, like, a narrative arc to it that that makes a lot of sense. But what we've seen these last few years is that um, it's just not true. We've had the um, development of this globalized just-in-time economy, and the economy has also gotten a lot more efficient. Like there's no um, warehouses with spare parts, there's no margins for error, there's nothing like that. Well, what that produces is an extremely fragile system. And in an extremely fragile system, you really don't need to have 2 million workers to shut down, like, you know, a a state in the US or something. You could have 2,000 workers. And if they're critical enough, like, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 100 million people in America will be impacted severely because there's, again, no margins left in the system. And um, what this produces is just a situation where over time, workers who work in the real economy, where, again, like every worker is pretty much critical, if people at a New York NGO stopped answering their emails, you know, 
we could go fa- a fairly long while, I think, before anyone really noticed that, you know, they weren't at their posts. Mm. But if, you know, sewer maintenance workers <laughs> stopped working, it, it wouldn't really take a long time before people really, really noticed, right? Mm. And so the people who have those kinds of jobs, which is not everyone, but it's still a sizable part of the population, are starting to realize that the moment they really um, start using their sort of critical leverage, they can actually achieve quite a lot. Um, They, you know, you had the truckers protest in Canada, and now you have the farmers in the Netherlands. And before that, you had like pilots striking sort of unofficially because striking was formally illegal. But basically doing wildcat strikes, um, which really paralyzed a lot of, um, you know, airplane travel uh, in 2020. You you just mentioned the Canadian truckers, and you do mention that in your piece as well. And it, it's interesting, you probably know Canada public very divided on this issue. Uh, Some see the truckers as neither working class nor particularly political. The dominant narrative in the media followed our prime minister's comments, uh, saying that the truckers were a fringe group, espousing a pretty coherent message and even perhaps a hateful one. I found it very bizarre to see groups like the Communist Party of Canada denouncing the truckers. And you wrote a, a really important piece at that time saying how the left betrayed the truckers. Can you unpack this for us? Why do you, why is the left so hostile to these working class protests we're seeing around the West? I mean, I think that like, like when I joined the left, people were really being nostalgic about um, old struggles. Like there was some G8 meeting in Europe in 1998 or something. And people 10 years later were still sort of recounting tales of struggle from that meeting because, you know, someone threw a Molotov and, you know, the cops came in with a water cannon and it was a real battle. And and people sort of venerated those memories because they were seen as early signs that the working classes were about to wake up, form a political consciousness. And I bring this up because right now in 2021 and 2022, the real problem for the last left is not like the lack of a working class political consciousness. It's quite the opposite. It's that this consciousness is actually growing. So you have one of these, uh, one of the people involved in the Canadian trucker protests, a man named Gord McGill, who is a trucker himself, lives in America uh, full time now. Um, He wrote a very short essay for the American think tank, American Compass, where he basically asked the question, how useful are the email costs of people? And he answered that question sort of in the negative, saying that, well, they aren't particularly useful. If I stop delivering propane, uh, my customers will die in, you know, freeze to death during the winter pretty shortly. But if people writing up all of these regulations or, you know, writing um, diversity plans for the inspector group that is supposed to inspect the propane tank, uh, sometimes these people are just openly parasitical. Other times they do very little. And if you have people 
who drive trucks or fly planes or fix engines who start getting this sort of political consciousness, this is going to put them at an obvious collision course with, you know, the class base of the left. Mm. Because, you know, the left consists of people who, who belong to Gord McGill's email cost. So he is essentially saying that these people are class enemies. Um, if you do not belong to the email cost, but you are a worker, you have an opposite interest to these people. These people are your enemies. They're not your allies. And obviously, if this consciousness spreads, which it is, and I think it, that spread cannot be halted because it sort of ties into the reality that people perceive around them. But if that consciousness spreads, you know, the left will no longer be able to pretend to be on the side of the workers. And increasingly they don't, which is what happened in Canada. Um, you had Slavoj Žižek, for example, making the point, which, you know, really sort of illustrates how thin the, the like the facade is getting. But Žižek was essentially making the point that, well, okay, these truckers are opposed to the left and we in the left, we are naturally opposed to them because being a trucker today, that's actually being part of this conceptual Marxist category, the petty bourgeoisie. So basically um, <laughs> small time capitalists. Mm. But um, regardless of whether people should stick rigidly to these old um, categories like petty bourgeoisie, uh, lumpen proletariat, proletariat capitalist. And I think that people often do that uncritically and it sort of stifles thinking, regardless of whether you agree with these categories or not. Like this is just formally incorrect because if you are a trucker, an owner operator in, in Canada or in the US, the structure of this is that your ownership is just formal. Like, you, uh, this is a legal fiction because what is actually happening is that you are be increasingly becoming a debt slave to some company or a bank who pretends that you own the truck, uh, but you actually have to sort of, you're de facto basically leasing it. You, you have these unpayable loans where you can't really pay off the principal or the principal is just vastly uh, bigger than the actual value of the truck. And so people try to trap you in, in these sort of debt slavery schemes. Like, um, and, and Shishik is not a dumb guy. Like he has the intelligence necessary to tie his own shoelaces, let's say. But that level of intelligence is also the same level of intelligence necessary to realize that, well, you know, if the Spanish call their slaves working in the mines in Spain, their uh, like dependents, like people they're protecting, like, you know, parents protect their children. Well, you know, maybe it's still slavery. Like we don't really have to focus entirely on the ideological justifications, we can just look, do these children have time to play? Do they have the freedom to, you know, not work in the mines? 
can they just say, oh, well, you know, I'm an adult now, so I don't have to be a slave in the mines. No, they can't. So maybe they're not like, you know, uh, this is not a children-parent relationship, but something else. But I mean, Shishik has to do this for a very simple reason, which is that nobody can really say that, well, okay, the time when you can have an alliance between workers and sort of email class people, that time is basically over. And so we have to go our separate ways like that Disney movie, The Fox and the Hound, where the childhood friends realize that they're kind of opposite sides. And so, like, you know, they can't be friends anymore. Hmm. I want to ask you, uh, as well about about the right. So in the piece, you you say these are spontaneous worker protests. They have had very little institutional support from the left or the right. In Canada, some of the Conservative Party now trying to harness that grassroots energy. You write in the piece that talk of restyling Conservative parties as pro-worker parties may be in earnest, but it's almost comically out of touch with reality. Can you unpack that one for us? Yeah, Um I think that there was a lot of hope in, say, 2016, you had Trump winning. And then um, a bit later, you had Boris Johnson in 2019 winning this huge victory uh, of, of, of the backs of uh, Northern labor workers who defected the Tory party. Like this was kind of the high point of of dreaming dangerously, as Slavoj Žižek would would put it, in terms of like we can build a new coalition um, of of you know the nationalist right with a working class base. But the what is clear in two thousand twenty two is that. You know, this would be a nice idea, but like no real work is being done because of institutional inertia. Uh, there are already too many sort of um, fat cats, old donors and so on that really don't want to change. And there's not enough sort of a first mover advantage to changing. So you get this fairly familiar historical dynamic where um, everyone can see that, you know, France in the late 18th century. Uh, France, you know, before the French Revolution, like things are just falling apart. Like we can't go on like this. Everyone in France knows that France cannot go on like this. But nobody, like everyone who tries to change it is defeated because like the interest saying, well, you know, don't rock the boat are much stronger than the interest saying, well, if I don't rock the boat now in 15 years, we're going to have a big revolution and you and I are going to get our heads cut off and then we're going to wish we rocked the boat like 15 years before that. So you're, you're, people are trapped. Uh, and this is not necessarily a, a bad thing for workers. In fact, I think it's a good thing because um, the way that this will resolve is that um, there won't really be any organized forces on the board to really try to co-opt um, these people to try to channel, you know, working class anger into basically wasting itself on defending more sort of college educated, uh, you know, diversity consultants or whatever. Hmm. Um, just to close, I mean, you write in the piece also about this sort of spontaneous 
self-organization that we're seeing in these movements. We definitely saw that in Canada. The trucker protest was at once sort of unorganized because no one in particular was in charge a lot of the time, but also extremely organized with these command centers springing up and meal distribution. You write that tomorrow's working class movements are going to be tough, flexible, and brittle at the same time, and that it would be a mistake to assume the current wave of militancy will let up anytime soon. Malcolm, in in coming months, what will you be watching for going forward? I mean, the big thing is just um, the response to all of these mounting crises in, in Europe. So for a lot of continental Europe, the, like you have the looming energy disaster, like that's the right way to put it. And, you know, just yesterday you had a fairly serious international standoff that is, is not over by any means with Pelosi going to Taiwan over very, very strenuous Chinese um, uh, objections. Mm-hmm. and the interesting issue here is that if you're an American politician who uh, is in favor of Pelosi, you know, stirring the pot, as it were, like, you know, increasing the sharpening the contradictions, as Vladimir Lenin would have said, um, you are banking on the fact that while China may produce, you know, pretty much all of the antibiotics that we in the West use, like, pretty much 80, 90% of them, you will be able to, if you have to, you know, give up on antibiotics in order to protect Taiwanese democracy from being absorbed into China, that like working class people would just say, yeah, you know, I really care about Taiwanese democracy. Like this country of 20 million is uh, worth it to get like 800 million people in the West you know, not have any antibiotics and, you know, mothers dying while giving birth due to some infection that would have been easily treatable, you know, a year before. I don't think that's how it works. So any such big crisis that leads to a lot of economic pain, shortages of critical goods, uh, I am very worried about those in a sense, because Nobody seems to take them very seriously or Mm. or think about the consequences. But if they happen, everyone just lightly assumes that, you know, the truckers and the nurses and the pilots and the farmers, they're just going to take it. And if they don't, you know, organize and and demand change, they're going to have to take it. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a... pessimistic and an optimistic outlook i i guess because i do think they are going to to you know not take this lying down hmm. well we'll certainly be watching going forward and um i just found this piece to be really interesting and a, a great way of sort of thinking about the moment we're in so thank you so much for coming on today thank you for having me Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>